All right, thank you for joining us today. This episode titled, First House on the Left. Um, I'm very, very sorry and apologize. I, I still won't be getting to the letters written by uh, the, only, the only two freaking emails I've got. I've gotten three emails for this stupid fucking show. And I want more, people. This show sucks, and I blame you for not writing in and telling me to go fuck myself or handing my ass to me or something for whatever whatever I'm doing wrong. And go ahead, I don't give a fuck. Who gives a fuck? This show should be better today, though. Um, I'm just going to jump right into the uh, the best part of the show. The one-star review of Strip Clubs comes from Hammond, Indiana, Hammond, Hammond, Indiana, the Industrial Strip. I believe I, I googled uh, Gary, Indiana, and I got Hammond. I don't know what the difference is, aside from Michael Jackson is from Gary. This is the Industrial Strip at 3626 Calumet Avenue, Hammond, Indiana. This is a little rude. One star. Ugly girls work over there. No punctuation. Uh, Lorena Alcantar. That's a little mean, Lorena. Lorena. Okay. Um, Sarah Eridoras. If that is your real name. Don't go there. Hardly any ladies, and if you get one, make sure you keep track of how many songs. Comma. Numerous times I've said more... Numerous times they've said more than what what there was. They def try to take advantage of you. Yeah. That's a common problem. Dennis Culpepper. One star is a year ago. By far the worst strip club I've ever been to. They charge $10 a cover. I walk through the door and there is literally no girls. There, no girls dancing. Comma. There's a few girls sitting in the corner chairs with guys. It took a good seven, comma, eight minutes to order a beer from the bartender. And I was the one trying to order. And there was nobody at the bar. The bartender is texting at the cash register for a good five minutes. Doesn't bother to turn around. I drink my beer, wait for 20 minutes, and there's literally no girls dancing or even anywhere in the area. How could this place even stay in business, question mark? Well, I'd imagine, um, <clears throat> I'd imagine uh, through um, the $10 cover, maybe uh, maybe an $8 beer, and then people willing to... Um, I guess do some dry humping in the back or whatever goes on there or, or, or more or more. Um, I've actually been to a strip club in, I believe it was in Gary, Indiana. I do not remember the name of it. It was sometime in the nineties. And, uh, I was helping a friend out there and we were in class together and he lived right out there. And I, he, he went to my college, Columbia college. And, um, it's, it's not that much of a story, but I, I, I have been to a, a, and it was a tiny bar, the tiny stage, 
And the ladies did not uh, perform nude. They had those large band-aids that are circular. They're for bigger cuts, I guess, that are circular. And they were using them as pasties. So they just had kind of gross rubber bandy looking pasties. It was very interesting. I, I'll tell you one story. I went there. I, all right, so I went there. I went to this place twice, and one of my friends I went there with, and uh, I'm I'd gone there, and uh, he had told me there was a bathroom located at the front of the place, and he had told me as soon as we got there, he's like, "Ugh, I gotta take a shit," and I just thought that's horrible. This place was a dingy dive of a place as it was, and he had to take a crap, and I didn't inform him that I knew it was a small bathroom with no lock on the door and no stall. So you were, you had the urinal right next to the, uh, the commode. And he said to take a crap. And I just felt so sorry for him. And not even in, and not even really giving him a heads up and say, Hey, guess what? You're probably going to have some company in there too, while you do it even better. So he, he went in there and, um, yeah, I just I just laughed myself as he's in there because I'm thinking that's horrible. That's got to be a horrible experience. And sure enough, he came out saying there's no fucking toilet paper in there. He had to grab some, and they didn't have any toilet paper, so he had to grab some Bev naps and clog the toilet up. And I think the toilet was clogged after that. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Don't remember the name of the place. It didn't even have a stage. It had kind of a riser. It's it's just really, really depressing but in a good way okay okay and this is from a year ago from uh, Carmelo one or I I'm not sure or lowercase l perhaps it's perhaps it's Carmelo L one year ago walked in and granted it's Wednesday night but there but where the fuck are the strippers this place looks like a strip club but for who question mark Am I supposed to jump up on stage and start taking my clothes off or something? Question mark. It sounds like you want to. Talk about a waste of time. If I wanted to see nude women on a screen, I would have stayed home. Which is the, which at that moment is something I wish I did. Yes, could have saved yourself that ten dollar cover, and the seven or eight minutes it takes for Buddy Boy to get you a, a drink while he's texting his um, his estranged wife or whatever at the at the bar. Gave it two stars. This is sort of strange. Gave it two stars because at least the doorman and bartender were nice enough. Actually changed my mind. One star. Why am I here? Just finished my drink, and the only female I've seen is serving drinks. So halfway through, it was a two-star review, and then she said, you know what? Fuck this place. They don't deserve that second star. Not couple. All right, this is from Erwin Rommel. Let's see, when did he, this doesn't, oh, this is a year ago, one star. Not couple friendly like other clubs. Seems more for single males. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. This, this, is, this is a theme that comes up uh, on these, even says, like, it'll even, like, give you sub, like, if you look up the reviews, it's, like, in Google reviews, and uh, it'll say certain, like, Keywords and racist comes up three times in in reviews of the industrial strip. Anissa Humphrey, 
This is a year ago. The club is very racist. No thanks. LOL. Am I confused? Is, is that a laugh out loud kind of thing? It's racist. That's hilarious, dude. Oh, let's follow it right up with um, STQ Media Group One. STQ Media Group One. Four years ago, modern day racism at its best. We were alienated. This club doesn't have any variety of women basically catering to whites and Indians. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, yeah. It's modern day racism at its best. I guess so. So that was four years. There's three years between these two reviews. So obviously they didn't get their shit together. All right. This is from Joseph McConnell. Three years ago, there were probably two and a... That sucks. This is from Joseph McConaughey. Three years ago, there were probably two and a half okay-looking girls. And I had to look to find them. Why ever where did you find them? The music is so terrible. No one is dancing on stage. So when I finally found one... I took her to the VIP. I gave her $40. And in it was a was a baggie left over from last time. In it was a baggie left over from last time. All right. I didn't know what until she called all five trash head bodyguards. I didn't know what until she she called all five trash-headed bodyguards. I didn't get the dance neither and got kicked out because I gave her free drugs. Oh, so you had the... I was a little confused on that one. Um, I gave her $40 and in it was a baggie left over from last time. I, I almost thought that was some kind of slang for a discarded condom, a soiled condom, as uh, would have been referred to by Frank Oz. Away with the soiled condom, you must. Um, let's see here. I didn't get the dance neither and got kicked out because I gave her free drugs. Two question marks. Absolutely terrible. And the sad thing is, I never learn. I've been disappointed. Three out of three times been there. Oh, also, I was so mad I called the cops on him. Laugh my ass off with the uh, usual abbreviation for that. This is from M-A-A space M. One review. Five years ago, one star. Worst club ever, rude staff, and very racist. Steer clear of this one. Yeah, there's the third racist in here. I guess that's all the racism that they uh, that they that people were willing to report on them. I, I'm sure there must have been more. Oh, my God. So this is kind of... Carmen. Hmm. Savreda. Savrida, Savrida, S-A-A-V-E, oh, S-A-A-V-E-D-R-A, Savrida, rated R, starts Friday in theaters everywhere, uh, no one permitted without a parent or guardian, translated by Google, very interesting, a very dirty place, the chairs at the private dances were all sticky with sweat, are you sure about that, the women with very bad surgeries, hmm, huh. Surgeries. I've seen. Um, I've seen an occasional. Uh, what's that called? C-section scar. 
I one time, uh, and this is uh, probably about uh, 15 years ago, I was saying something about C-section scars, and the girlfriend at the time said, they have much better technology. They have technology to cover up those scars now. And I said to her, well, at the strip clubs I go to, that is not the case. So, yeah, that's the rest of that review, because it's it's original. Una lugar muy suquico, las cilias en los bailes privados están todas pegajos de sudor las mejor con muy malas surgias hmm. that is about how far I'm going to get south of the border with my Spanish before they just you know kidnap me or something oh, and the rest are very disappointing just single stars and no Reviews, boy, oh boy. Let's see if we got anything else. Let's see if we got anything else. Um, there's a place called hmm, Hazelcrest. Hmm. Uh, uh, no, Dream Girls, Dream Girls, Lake Station, Indiana. Lake Station, Indiana. Dream Girls. Hmm. I get not accepting passes ATM with 50% capacity, but Deja Vu Tattoo, the logo, is different. That's free. Lifetime cover. No restrictions. All right. So, all right, gosh. Joe R., and this is from three months ago. I'm going to repeat this because I know. I get not accepting passes ATM with 50% capacity, but Deja Vu Tattoo, in parentheses, the logo, is different. That's free. Lifetime cover. No restrictions. This person went to a strip club three months ago in the middle of a pandemic. He said, I just really want to um, be in proximity of people who are constantly in proximity of people. Okay, here we go. This is from uh, a year ago. Isaac Garris. Scam. All caps. Careful. Walked in. Had just two drinks before a girl sat next to me. Okay. We got to talking and she started telling me what they offer. $15 for a room for 15 minutes. Is that a is that a bad deal? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't sound... It seems like it's... 15 minutes? $15? I, isn't that good? Awesome, right? That's exclamation point, not a question mark. I believe you, mis, uh, you miscalculated. Okay, let's go. Next thing, it's a hundred up front. I like for what question mark? Get it right that time. She says it's for me. I'm like, this is just a private dance. Like twenty dollars a song thing. Alright, now that's why it didn't sound too bad because um it was bullshit. She said that that's just up front and then it's twenty dollars a song. I said, here's my fifteen dollars. Get the hell out of here. No way I'm paying $240 for 15 minutes. Don't let them get you. I won't. Well, this place is not too bad. It only has Dream Girls at 2491 Ripley Street, Lake Station, Indiana. Only has two one-star reviews. The rest are two and three. Three, they got a four-star, they got a four-star excellent service. Um Yeah, so. I think you're doing it. Although, 
these people who went here are probably dead now if they got the COVID. They get people coughing on some bare breasts while they're getting their $240 for, was that for 15 minutes then? Yeah, that seems, I mean, without, uh, yuck, gross. I, I shudder to think, you know, <laughs> it certainly got me more in it than just a little like, um, lap dancing, I guess. Here's an interesting one here. Hmm. Not sure where this is. All right. Hmm. I'm not sure if this is what, uh, oh, Gary, Indiana. This is the Man Cave Nightclub. 3201 East Dunes Highway, Gary, Indiana, 46402. It opens at 7 p.m. this evening. So, 16 reviews. Lowest rating first. Oh. First one-star review, and this isn't very exciting. Unfortunately, they were closed. Someone should update. Two months ago. Yeah. You need updating on what the fuck's going on right now. Kind of all the things. Like, yeah, I... Being in ridiculously close proximity of people who have been ridiculously close in proximity, it's not the kind of thing I'd really want to do in the middle of this. I mean, I, you know, kind of hold my breath while I'm getting a, a haircut for half an hour. Okay, um, this is from 10 months ago, before the world went wrong. This is by Thomas Patsis, P-A-T-S-I-S. One star, sad place. One person found that helpful. This is another one-star review. These people are not very creative. One star. Sucks. No exclamation mark. It's, that seems like a good place to put one there. And then that's it. So either there's nothing but exquisite service in the Hammond and Gary, Indiana area of strip clubs or just people just don't really... Uh, people just don't want to air out their dirty laundry. Which is no fun for my show. Okay. First house on the left. <clears throat> About a year ago... About a year and a half ago, I was having lunch with my mom, and she said, Lillian Maselli died. And I said, who the fuck is Lillian Maselli? Now, I didn't say fuck in that. I would, I'd never, seldom swear in for my mother. My mother is of the old school that she, uh, she doesn't see movies because she says... I don't like all that language they use. And that's and that's probably what she said about ET. So I didn't I didn't say fuck, but I did say uh who the hell is Lillian Maselli? And she said, "Why, she's that woman that lived next door to us in Belnor between 82 and 85. Between 82 and 85, uh, my parents picked up and moved from um the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, Michigan area to the uh, St. Louis area, specifically North County, this sort of a Normandy area, eh, about a mile away from now the world-famous Ferguson area. We lived across the street from the University of Missouri-St. Louis, 
which is where my dad worked as an administrator, uh, they they aptly nicknamed it Umzel, which at the time my dad thought sounded stupid. Although he has never not called it Umzel since, and nor does anyone else for that matter. So back in '82, we moved uh, to a house at 8520 Roanoke. Now this happens to be the the last place I experienced uh, trick or treating. It's the last house, and I, I think I only did it. Yeah, I think I only did it the first year. So in '82, my first probably, probably October of '82 is my first experience with um, having Halloween in this neighborhood. And it was well known that the woman that lived next door to us, uh, the first house on the left, if you were to face our porch, uh, it was well known that she had murdered her husband, went to jail, continued to run, I believe it was the ABC Taxi Cab Company, from prison, was released and lived next door to us in 82. She lived there with her father. If uh, I were to give you a, a sort of visual for those of you who are in their you know f- late 40s and 50s, she was not unlike Mrs. Roper. She had a sort of mane of curly red hair that was probably dyed, if not uh, uh, if not t- uh, cared to. By a beautician on a on a regular basis, and she wore those um God I wish I knew that, those moo-moos or those those kinds of dresses that that Mrs Roper. She wore those dresses that Mrs Roper would wear that you'd see in the the hit series, Three's Company. And she was a, she was a very nice lady. I mean, she would uh, it, upon moving there, I knew everything I needed to know, obviously. The obvious, she had murdered her husband over a disagreement over um, over money, seemingly. Surprise, surprise. And so I remember just uh, being in my backyard, and she would, she would come out and just be delighted to see me and always just engage in conversation. And I was about 12. I was about 11 years old or 12. And I, uh, I must say, I was, was a bit uneasy around her. Um, seeing that I had this knowledge. And there was this uh, rather elderly gentleman that was her father, and she was no spring chicken. Uh, she, uh, she, He would always be out there, too, just looking like he was about to drop dead right there in front of me. And so th- upon knowing this, uh, it was always kind of, um, I guess it was always kind of like, like that was like the haunted house story in the neighborhood that this woman killed her husband and, and lived there. And uh, I didn't really know much about the date. I thought it could have happened in the 1950s or something. I think I thought that for a long time, that it might have happened in the 60s or the 50s. Not having really a frame of reference. It's, to me, she looked like she could have been 100 years old. So uh, I, I, I googled her name, Lillian Maselli, and I found the whole court case about what had happened. And it was quite interesting, because um, I always had a lot of questions, and, and I guess uh, I've found the answers here. Primarily, um, basically, the, the time frame, which apparently happened in like 1973, they were separated, 
they uh, had been they had been separated. He had driven to this home, and this home was located at eighty seven or eighty five twenty two Roanoke Avenue. I'm sorry, eighty five twenty two Roanoke Drive, Belnor, Saturday, June thirty. From about two p.m., Mr. Maselli, Anthony Maselli, was seen at about four thirty as he came down the steps of the Dissinger home, which is one door east of the Maselli home. Uh, that would have been the house that I lived in for about two and a half years. There was a trail of blood leading from the Maselli home to the Dissinger home. D-I-S-C-H-I-N-G-E-R. Dishinger. Mr. Maselli was bleeding from the nose and ears, and he had lacerations of the chest and was covered with blood. As he left the Dissinger home, he staggered eastwardly down the street. One of his neighbors tried to walk him to the car. He collapsed on the lawn at 8467 Roanoke Drive. Mr. Sowash, S-O-W-A-S-H, so Wash, another neighbor, came up in a car and Mr. Maselli was, was assisted into the car and taken to the hospital. The only sounds he made on the trip were unintelligible moans, as you might imagine. After Maselli left the Dissinger home, Mrs. Spillman rang the doorbell at that house. Mr. Dissinger came out and went to the rear of his house. He saw Mrs. Maselli on the patio in her backyard, which is an image that's in my head. I know exactly what that looked like. Standing over a trash can as though she had just put something in it. <laughs> I'll bet she did. She was short. She was a short distance from her back door. She was wearing a, a nightgown, also an image that I can easily picture in my head. She had blood on her shoulder, arm, and left leg. Mr. Dissinger asked if he could help, and she said, stay away. He then went toward the front of the house. Mrs. Dissinger's dog started barking, and she went to the rear yard. When she got there, she heard Mrs. Maselli's back door slam. She, and she saw flames coming from the trash can in the Maselli yard. So seemingly, I guess, she had, she had uh, lacerated, she had, she had assaulted Mr. Um, Mr. Anthony Maselli, and I guess was trying to cover up some of this evidence. He threw something in the in the trash and, and lit it on fire. At about this time, Officer Tomlinson arrived. He went to the back door of the Maselli home, knocked on the door, identified himself as a police officer, and a female voice called out, Stay away! The officer went to the front door, which was unlocked, and let himself in. He saw Mrs. Maselli standing in the kitchen with a six-inch six knife pointed at her abdomen. At the request of the police officer, she surrendered the knife. He called out. The officer went to the front door, which was unlocked, let himself in, and he saw Mrs. Maselli standing in the kitchen with a six-inch knife pointed at her abdomen. Abdomen. At the request of the police officer, she surrendered the knife. Mrs. Maselli was dressed in a nightgown. Again, easily picturable for myself, because what she wore in the daytime was not unlike what you'd wear at the nighttime for a lady in the late 70s and early 80s, dressed like Mrs. Roper. She was bleeding about the scalp 
and the uh, abdominal area. When the officer asked her where her husband was, she showed him a telephone number and said, call my son. Mrs. Maselli was dressed. Now it starts to get interesting. There was a pool of blood on the kitchen floor with a towel and various rags in and around it. It was also There was also a pen lying in the rags, and there was a glass-topped table in the kitchen which had blood on it. On the table, there were a pair of glasses, a large checkbook, thus the disagreement over money, various business papers, a pencil, and a business portfolio. There was also a note in Mrs. Maselli's handwriting on the table reading, I love my family and friends. Forgive me. There was a blood leading from the kitchen down the hall to the front door. There were some drops of blood leading from the back door and onto the patio up to the trash can, which means she, she's carrying all this, this stuff and it was bleeding from. There's this much blood that was just pouring onto the floor, leaving a trail, a treasure trail of blood from uh, the middle of the house or kitchen to... Um, a trash can that was now on that was now on fire. There was no blood in the other rooms, or uh, there were no no blood in other rooms in the two story house. And I do remember a little bit. It was a beautiful looking house. You should look it up. You can probably see it on on uh, on the thing. Um, as as our house was was quite uh, impressive as well. A claw hammer with blood on it was found on a windowsill just outside just outside the rear door of the Maselli home. Ugh. A blow from this hammer from above behind, and behind Mr. Maselli would be consistent with the injuries found on Mr. Maselli's head. She hit him with a hammer. Which side? Let's see here. A blow from the hammer behind. A hammer with blood. Blood on it. Which which side? Do you think she used that, that teethy sign? He probably wouldn't have gotten that far. If the, he probably just whacked her with that, the business end, as they say. The defendant did not testify. I assume when they say defendant, they must mean... Lillian Maselli. Her evidence consisted of her hospital record and the testimony of Mr. Sowash. The hospital record revealed that she had multiple stab wounds about the abdomen. One of the wounds lacerated the spleen, requiring its removal. There are noted to be seven or eight small punctuated wounds in the middle temple, two to five millimeters in length and on investigation are felt quite superficial in nature. Although the discharge note states that Mrs. Maselli suffered a mild concussion, no attention was made, no mention is made of a concussion in the admissions notes. <clears throat> so here's, here's what she did. She basically, she, uh, I believe she perforated herself trying to make it seem like, I do remember this story at the time. It was stated that I think, and this is, uh, was, Ten plus years later or so, we had thought that they had a disagreement over money, that she had claimed a burglar came in and did it. Uh, it was also thought that he had plopped dead in our driveway. Um, and we weren't entirely sure. You know, and we certainly weren't going to go next door and start asking her questions about it. Uh, it was just relatively known. So I, I, you know, as much as you have, you you uh, you, you go with. It seemed seemed. It seemed like enough. So Mr. Sowash testified that while driving Mr. Maselli to the hospital, he asked what happened, and Mr. Maselli said he, Mr. Maselli said that he just got hurt, he just injured himself, or something to that effect. They have quotes, but they're quoting what 
Mr. Sowash said that it's not a quote of Mr. Maselli said, far more interested in that. But I guess they have to quote what Sowash says. They have no no actual quotes, as he seems a little, as he ends with something to that effect. There are no eyewitnesses to the assault, which resulted in the death of Mr. Maselli. In, in a case in which is based upon circumstantial evidence, the facts and the circumstances must be consistent with each other and with the hypothesis of the defendant's guilt. They must be inconsistent with his, with his innocence and exclude every re- reasonable hypothesis of his innocence. I mean, is it possible... I have brought this case up, and I, I thought it happened a little later. I thought there was. I thought she actually served like four years in jail for what she was charged with. Initial charge was murder one, murder in the first, and she got manslaughter. So I think I think she had a relatively small amount of time for a murder, which every now and again I'd bring up to ladies whenever um, they would ask her. It's saying, "Why does a guy make?" I I had said this to a girl when a, a girl had said, "You know, why why is it a." A woman makes uh, so much less an hour than a man. I go, I don't know. I think because when you go crazy and start stabbing your husband, you get like four years for it. But it's probably a little bit more. But I do think seven or eight years is is less. I mean, over a discussion over money, I mean, there's a lot. Of, it's, the first thought is, well, maybe he was abusive to her. Was he verbally abusive? I don't know. It seems strange. Uh, I don't know. Or does it? Who knows? I mean, these are... I think these are middle class white people. They probably have access to a good lawyer. I think she probably had a decent amount of money. She, she owned a, he owned a cab company that, upon stabbing uh, him, she inherited. So they could find that Mr. Maselli was initially struck from behind while seated at the kitchen table by the hammer. See, that's another thing right there. It's like, Jesus fucking Christ. Hammer which was found on the windowsill outside. Defendant was known to have been outside. In the immediate area where the hammer was found, defendant was found with a knife in her possession, which could have caused the stab wounds to her husband and self-inflicted upon herself. So she told the cop to stay away. I guess she punctured herself a few times. Um... The note in the defendant's handwriting also, she's, I love my family, I'm sorry, is what seemingly what it said. So, uh, I don't know, I don't know. So, defendant was the only person found in the house of which the victim departed. Each case of circumstantial evidence must be considered in the light of its own peculiar facts. Was his fingerprints on a, on a box in the victim's apartment? Defendant's uh, principal uh, complaint is that there is no showing of motive. Motive is not necessarily an element of the crime. Motive is not a necessary element of the crime. This is evidence, however, that the defendant and the victim were estranged, a fact from which the jury could believe that there was a motive for the defendant's action. Yes, I mean, if they were estranged, if they were separated, I suppose he came back and started giving her what for, albeit uh, verbally, if not physically, and physically obviously could constitute uh, his his own demise. The note in the defendant's handwriting would also indicate that the defendant felt that she had a motive to kill her husband. 
we conclude that there is sufficient, substantial evidence to submit to this case and to the jury. Defendant next contends the court erred in overruling appellant's motive for mistrial made when the prosecutor in this closing argument unfavorably commented under the appellant's failure to make an exemplary statement to police officers, thereby violating appellant's rights against self-incrimination and provided in um, uh, the portion of the state's uh, argument of which the defendant addresses his complaint. There were only two people in the house. One is dead. And you have to go by the evidence in the kitchen and on the outside and the actions of the parties. Never once did she tell the officer she had acted in self-defense and her husband attacked her. See, I, I think that would be in her best bet then let's clean up this mess. She she didn't say he's like all over me. He's uh, you know he's. Uh, it sounds like she wasn't quick on her feet on what to say and what to do around this. She probably didn't have enough crime shows back then to watch to really see. So, defendant's objection was judge. At this time, I'm going to object to comments made by the attorney for the state. Never once did she say to the police, "I ask for a mistrial." This objection was insufficient to preserve the point. The defendant did not call the attention of the court or to the ground of reason for the objection. Defendant did not seek to preserve this issue in her motion for trial. She now asks that we consider the issue ruled 27. Yeah, whatever. Minutia, um, minutia. Yeah. All right, so basically this woman, uh, it was known that this Mr. Roper-like woman, I guess was finally sentenced around 74, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this woman, I guess, had uh, stabbed her husband, and um, and it was known that, that the woman that lived next door, who was uh, ridiculously sweet and, and always engaging in the conversation of a uncertain 12 year old old boy i literally was just like uh nothing you know i think my responses to her were were just uh i I think i I, she had two matching poodles with that always had little bows in their hair they were well manicured poodles and that was the extent of the conversation i ever had with her uh up until uh my, my halloween that i spent there on roanoke in 82 I went trick-or-treating. I, I was dressed in a Dracula costume. I had a, I had a very well-made Dracula cape that my mother procured for me. I had one of those little medals that were around my neck that we also procured. My mom sewed this uh, excellent thing together. I had my red hair. I did nothing to the effect of black hair or a widow's peak. I just threw in those stupid plastic teeth every now and again. Um, I think one year I went out with blood coming down the corners of my mouth, and I, I thought that looked gross and sticky. It just kind of stayed there. So this 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 year I just refrained from that, and just had my uh, opie looking head on top of a, a miniature Count Dracula's body. Black pants, great cape, and uh, and and everything was pretty good with that. So I went out with my buddy Jamie, who dressed as a sort of hobo slash clown. It was kind of popular back then. I was never a fan of that costume, though. Uh, amongst the costumes I was never a fan of was also the, uh, m- a friend of mine used to call, was the blockhead where the person just had to throw some tin foil on some boxes and go out as a robot. I remember we used to make fun of that costume, and then one year I just 
was high and dry at the last minute. My mom made one, and I, I had to go out. And I, I think it was the year my my buddy uh, who I trick-or-treated with in the years before in Michigan, Tom, uh, called me out on having the blockhead costume. But that's neither here nor there. At some point when I lived in Michigan, I, I went out as Dracula upon my last year there, and I think I just recycled the Dracula costume this year, uh, that year in 82. So here's one thing that happened. So we, uh, Jamie and I uh, w- turned right out of my house. We met at my house and turned right out of there. Uh, literally went to every single house but the first house on the left. We, uh, down, the, down the street, about several houses down, is, uh, is, is a, a, a young man who is one of our peers who, uh, so upon walking down the street, we came to, uh, our, our friend Brian, and I won't be using any last names, we'll just say his name is Brian something or other, uh, our, our friend Brian was on the front porch with a bowl of candy and was not in costume and, uh, stated he wasn't going to be trick-or-treating this year. We thought was, which I thought was strange. I was like, you're going to miss out on all this loot of having a bag of candy at the end of the night. For what? For what? So, um, now Brian lived at 8340, no, he lived at 8435 Roanoke Drive. And uh, we'll get to that a little later. 8433 Roanoke Drive. Um, so, uh, Jamie and I covered the areas uh, quite quite explicitly it was a, it was literally a subdivision and so a lot of houses were, were all in range uh, there was never any um, quite the, the, the streets were crawling with kids there's none of that car driving around from house there's just all there's when trick-or-treating actually happened so we went to pretty much every house as we could possibly do it's absolutely exhausting ourselves uh, on uh, what range and perimeters we went to uh, we at one point did hear that one of our friends was actually uh, mugged for his bag of candy some older kids some bad kids older maybe teenagers swiped this kid's pillowcase full of candy <laughs> and uh, I think that might have been an inspiration to start packing it in before we got our candy swiped we um, can you imagine that being a teenager and just like stealing candy from a baby literally they said fuck this kid ripped it off maybe they pushed him down i don't know hope there's more violence involved so they they swiped his candy we went back as we came back we uh had not gone to lillian maselli's house i said Ugh. should we just go to lillian's house and it was we were quite trepidatious about it of course uh, i said yeah why not you know so i remember she was ecstatic when we came to the door. She was happy. And we just like, hi, trick or treat, drop the candy in the bag, let's go. She asked us to come in. Nerve wracking. Um, at some point, and I don't remember which, at one point, her, her, her version of it was that you didn't, she didn't give us any candy. She had a big coffee can full of pennies. And your objective was to reach your little baby hand into this can of pen- pennies and grab whatever you could grab of the pennies in the coffee can. You could keep, and it was 
a, a full coffee can, which made me think nobody had gone to her house. And as we did that, and I don't remember if Jamie did or not. He must have. I, I can't remember. Uh, the little kid I was with was Jamie. And I say little kid as uh, both of us were little kids. He, he might have been about a year or two, my minor, but not my bunch. Um, uh, he, uh, he, she asked us, she said, hold on, let's get a picture. And so we sat there. I just remember it taking a lot longer than I wanted to. I wanted to get the fuck out of this woman's house as soon as possible. And so we posed for a picture. And I do remember she gave us the picture maybe a week or two later. Uh, it was me and Jamie, and I was in a Dracula costume. Both of us just staring straight out, looking scared, because we were. We thought, hmm, here's a woman that's killed her husband, went to jail, <laughs> didn't express any remorse for it, didn't, didn't, didn't live a different lifestyle than anyone who didn't kill her husband. I mean, identical, except for the knowledge that we knew she, she was very sweet and very... Uh, verbose, but we we knew that she killed her husband. It was it's constantly in your head while you're looking. You're like, hi, buddy. You had this engaged in small talk. You just kept thinking, you killed your husband. So obviously, we're sitting there in this picture. We look petrified. We are just staring off, knowing this woman killed her husband, and assuming that she was going to live to kill again. As soon as a matter of time before she invited one of us over or, or just started stabbing us in the street. For all we know, we didn't really know aside from. Obviously, she uh, had more of a motive, as in she was married to the guy. But, um, I mean, it, it didn't seem that much. My parents are married. Mom didn't start stabbing my dad or hitting him in the back of the head with a hammer. So, I, uh, I, I, so, <laughs> so the following year, I, I was hanging out with, I started hanging out with Brian something or other. As I said, Brian something rather uh, lived in lived lived at this house. At the end, uh, now this house I hung out there incessantly. Brian and I became um, inseparable friends for an entire year, and it wasn't a good idea. We were actually kind of bad kids. We were kind of coming into our own about thirteen, fourteen ish, somewhere in there. I guess it was probably thirteen. I don't know. Um, and uh, we, we just had a whole, maybe a year, we hung out, we were smoking cigarettes, I was dipping tobacco, I remember uh, Skull Bandits had been released, so I was chewing on that and just getting dizzy off that and loving it, sneaking cigarettes, I think we even took pipe tobacco and rolled it into joints and smoked that, horrible, horrible. Um, we were sneaking into into the booze. I know that Brian, something or other, liked to mix drinks. No interest in drinking it himself. Just liked to mix it. So my first beer buzzes were in the in his basement. I mean, I think he would like mix like some little cocktails together, and it was probably like Grand Marnier and Perrier or something like that. Some kind of weird shit that our parents would have in the in the little dumb basement fridges. I do remember slamming like a bush or something in his basement or two and, and just feeling my first buzz in it. So uh, spent a lot of time at this house, in the basement, and the strict rules in this house. Never went upstairs. Never saw his bedroom once. Never hardly saw the main floor. You were instructed to only go to the back, basement, hang out, watch TV. He had a he had a, a little brother, and there's a lot of G.I. Joe toys. He's kind of a little, his little brother's a little, little boy. 
seemingly maybe five or six. And we would just sit there and watch TV, and a lot of shows were coming on, a lot of, a lot of movies, the HBO. His parents had actually taped The Exorcist, and that was where I saw The Exorcist for the first time ever, it was in the basement of 8435 Roanoke. Um, and uh, we watched it a handful of times. I saw the the day after down there. I saw the, the show Mr. Smith. Um, Jennifer slept here. Everything that came out during that 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 year. And like I said, we would sneak out late. And we got really into we got into a system of sneaking out, meeting up, and roaming the streets all night, smoking cigarettes, and doing some some mild vandalism. You know, we were teeping houses and maybe egging some houses and some cars or something like that, and, and had a whole system of sneaking out of our houses quite effectively, much to the chagrin of our parents. We eventually got caught. And there was one night that just got kind of bad, like we were kind of running around. And, and a lot of times the cops would kind of see us, you know, like a, a searchlight would go over us, and then they would sort of chase us, and we'd have to duck through backyards. It was quite exciting. Quite, I mean, we were really adrenaline junkies during this time. And so we'd kind of run. We knew all the backwood areas through all the houses, and we made it. We could always make it right through. They would never find us. They're, you know, we were too, too fast. One time we did get cornered behind a house that was across of a busy street. We literally had to be there for, we literally had to stake out there while cops circled us. They pretty much had us closed in and didn't know. We just stayed behind a house in the rain and snow, petting some uh, strange cat. So we ended up getting, we ended up getting, I mean, we got caught because my mom asked for some, because I, I, we got caught because my mom just suspected something was, was rotten in Denmark, and she found these uh, war-torn pants that basically were out in uh, putridly uh, bad weather. And um, so we, we everything just kind of collapsed. There was a, a problem with trust with the folks. You know, his parents, my parents were talking and saying how we were, you know, bad kids and how we couldn't hang out anymore. We were... We were we were we were restricted to hang out. Um, there was a third kid involved as well, and he was kind of a piece of work. He actually was kind of a worse kid than us, involving problems with kleptomania, and uh, I mean, he could not go anywhere without stealing. So uh, that may be another story for another day. But me and Brian, something or other, we uh, we were forbidden to to talk and to converse. We're only down the street from one another. We occasionally had systems where if you let it, if you call them and let it ring once, hang up, we knew it was a good time to call them back. If not, we didn't do it. So we, we would, and then we, we were getting caught for that. So we weren't allowed to talk. We weren't allowed to, we weren't allowed to be in any proximity. We also went to different schools. So this is a big deal. Both of us went to separate private schools. So that was a factor in us not being around each other. Um, so one thing that, uh, uh, one thing that eventually happened was after several months of us, uh, not being allowed to be around each other, uh, Brian's house, uh, ward on the street, Brian's something or other's house, 8435 Roanoke was broken into. And, uh, I remember, uh, being called, it was ironic because my parents and I, spent some afternoon at these Scottish games 
And uh, as we got home, my dad had ominous tones like, I want you to uh, go upstairs and put on a button-down shirt and a nice pair of pants. We're going to go somewhere. And I would say, where are we going? I don't feel like I need to tell you at this moment right now. Just go do it. It was just an ominous tone. I knew something was wrong. I knew I had to come up with something, whatever. You know, I have to pretty much figure out an alibi for a crime. I'm not even sure. Uh, something I had to come up with something in my head, so I had to be ready to answer something, which is pretty normal as a kid, really. You're constantly, you know, you're constantly on your case about something. You're constantly coming up with uh, phony alibis for something uh, on light or heavy matters. So at this point, uh, we were called into a, um, we were driven to, we're driven to a juvenile facility, juvenile delinquent facility of some sort. This is in Clayton, Missouri. And uh, we came in and, and there was, uh, and uh, so this place we lived is a little municipality. This tiny little subdivision actually had their own police force, for lack of a better word. They had a police station and about four or five cars. Bonor police had their own police force. Uh, so we had to drive at least uh, 20 or 30 minutes down to a facility uh, in Clayton, which is in Mid-County, and this is all in North County that I'm, I'm living in here. And we are driven to Mid-County from North County. And we had to wait in this room, and we were in some kind of juvenile f- fucked-up kid facility. So we, um, so I sat there, and I was called into a room with this uh, sort of detective. He kind of had a dumb mustache, a sort of baggy uh, ill-fitting suit, um, and almost a mullet. He he really looked like everything you expect from a a municipality detective, nineteen eighty-two or eighty-three or so. And he basically said, "Hey, this house uh, was broken into, which was a house that was well affiliated with a house that I had been at after hours, snuck out overnight. I'd committed crimes in, such as drinking." And uh, had been in after hours upon uh, no one knowing. Brian had a great house because you could actually go to his basement and hang out. And his parents were none the wiser. So if we were sneaking out, we could go back to his place and they wouldn't even know what was going on. So we always hung out there during our shenanigans. So I was basically interrogated by this police officer. And he had said, and I think I had heard about it. I'd heard briefly that something happened at the at the Bryan house, but I didn't know. And I didn't know. I did not have anything to do with it. I was not even a shoplifter back then. Certainly not a breaking and entering kid. I had uh, done some sort of light vandalism, like egging cars and or houses and, and mainly teeping and, and did the shaving cream stuff, all, all kinds of maybe soaps and windows. Very, very... Very pedestrian stuff. Stuff that we thought were serious crimes that we'd be going down on our permanent record forever if we ever got caught. So what happened was, Brian, um, so what happened was, the, the officer, and I, I don't remember his name at all, basically you know, took in whatever I had to say. My parents were there, present. Uh, I said I didn't know anything about it. Uh which I kind of had heard about it, but I didn't. I didn't really know anything. I'd heard a rumor, a word on the street. So he asked my parents to uh, leave the room briefly. He would like to speak to myself alone. Uh, 
And once my parents walked out, he slammed his notebook down on the on the table. Sorry, I just get his listen, you little shit. I know you did this. You are going to get caught for this. Uh, we've already got somebody that says you knew everything about it, and they can finger you and being a part of it. And I was just aghast, and I was like, "Who? Who is it? Is it Jamie? Is it Jamie? Do you say he's a liar? Jamie's a liar. I didn't have anything to do with it, and and I had nothing to do with it." Um, he's basically one of those tactics that you see on, on, on any dumb show is where they say, Hey, you know, your partner's in the other room singing like a canary. You are going to go up the river for this crime unless you single him out. And he, it was this tactic that you do on, on real criminals. We, we hadn't done anything, nothing. I mean, honestly, I, I would have taken the toilet papering to my grave thinking that I had committed some federal crimes during that little did I know about the law. Um, but he went on, he just really berated me. He said, your parents are going to find out about this. They can find out about other stuff too. Literally just, just tried to scare the fuck out of me. And I was just like, well, I, I didn't do it. I'm certainly not going to admit to a crime I didn't do. And, and here's the thing. Here's the reason why I left this important tidbit out. The reason why I was a suspect in this crime, I had not been around Brian or seen, been seen with Brian, nor even been on the phone with Brian in several weeks, if not months. Um, but one thing that was stolen were booze and, or, uh, booze and some fireworks. And the fireworks were actually hidden inside of a, a wall cavity and only six kids knew where that was. And I was one of the six and probably one of the ones more capable. Cause I was already around like dumb kids. I was around Greggy Klepto and, uh, it's part of the nefarious ones. Of the six, the other two are pretty light. Um, but I certainly am not a big fireworks guy, and I never certainly am not going to break into a house just to get some what, black cats or ladyfingers or sparklers or snakes or whatever it was, smoke bombs. I mean, it wasn't that much. It was literally like a normal size brown shopping bag with some bottle rockets and shit in it. Not exactly. Uh, None, not exactly the crime you want to retire on or start on. So uh, he did say something like, well, we know some. And then the cop said, the cop, the cop, the detective had said, well, we know that it was a smaller person that broke in because the fingerprints were smaller size. And I was like, well, then take my finger. I was kind of like, well, I, I'm here to help. Whatever you want. But I didn't do it. He kept insisting that I did it. He literally like just just stared me down and tried and literally tried to coerce confession. I honestly don't think he would have cared what kid would have confessed to it. Didn't matter. Some kid did it. And uh, verbally like, and, and my parents were kind of like, we don't know if our fucked up kid did it. They were thinking I was a fucked up kid. I was sneaking out of the house. I I'd experimented with drugs a little bit. Um, oh, that was another thing. We were scoring some doobage a little bit. Well, I should say, we scored something that was rolled up into a joint that may or may not have been marijuana, and we smoked it, and I'm not sure if we really got high off it. We assumed we were high, but I didn't really feel the effects during those times. This is one of the early times you smoke where it really doesn't affect you. I remember hearing that story. It's like, is that because it doesn't affect you because your body doesn't really react to it, or is that because what you buy, you buy off some junior high boy that fucked you over and put some pencil shavings and some uh, some coffee grounds into a into a thing and sold it to you and you smoked it and coughed it out and didn't get high but yeah pretended you were um 
that so there was some light 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 drug use and uh and and, and mainly school bandits that made you dizzy as shit that was a big big thing was the, the tobacco and cigarettes I was rather, rather fond of cigarettes. I've been smoking cigarettes since I was 11 already, uh, which was two years before. So, yeah, I'd already had uh, smoked a, a pack of Vanguards and, and some Salems or whatever I stole from my mom's purse from here to there. So we had done this. Um, and like I said, the cop, and it, it was something like, all right, so when he walked out, after this, and I'm horrified. I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm, it sounds like I'm going to be fingered for a crime I didn't do. Here's my life, a crime uh, starting off. And I saw the other kid, Greg uh, Greg Klepto, was in there and just like, oh, shit. And I oh, had seen Greg earlier at the, at the Scottish Fest. I, I mentioned, I didn't mention that earlier. I'd seen Greg earlier, and we were just geared away from each other immediately by his mom and my parents. And then I saw him in the waiting room next in line to be interrogated. Which, to be all honest, uh, I never did find out who pulled off the great caper um, in uh, in the Belnor house, in the 8433 Roanoke Drive house, who, who broke into it. Uh, but um, to this day, I don't, I don't think it was Greg. Somehow I think the kid that lived there did it himself, was my hypothesis, was that somehow he had done it himself. Um, so, uh, upon my friendship with Mr. Brian something or other, he was, uh, one particular note is he was always obsessed trying to figure out where the quote unquote St. Louis exorcist house was. He used to constantly in my basement of my parents' house, my parents had a bookshelf and apparently we had a copy of the, we had a copy of the the paperback in this uh, shelf of paperbacks that we had. It was nestled in right in between um, I'm okay, you're okay, and the ladies' room or some some, some other whatever popular n- novels that were, were around our house for the last 12 years. Uh, I do remember my parents did have I'm okay, you're okay, and uh, The Exorcist, which I, apparently I think I found out later was my brother's. My, my brother saw The Exorcist um, at the same age I was and was haunted by it and had nightmares. And I had seen it the same age and I kept it a secret because I didn't want them. I was strictly, strictly uh, refused to be able to see The Exorcist. It was completely restricted that I was, was able to see that. So I saw it and lied and I didn't think it was that scary at all. There are Hammer films made in the 60s I found scarier than The Exorcist. So it didn't it didn't have that much of an effect on me, but I did see it in the basement of eighty four thirty thirty five Roanoke, and like I said, uh, Mister Brian something or other always obsessed with finding that he used to grab the paperback novel of the Exorcist novel from our 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 shelf, and it's like we we got to find out where this this house is. You know, it, it took place in St. Louis. Now let me edify you about this uh, if you don't know the story behind the connection of the Exorcist and St. Louis. Uh, the Exorcist, which uh, is a movie. Uh, directed by William Freakin in 1974, is about a little girl in Georgetown in the 70s who is who is possessed, and they hire Max von Sydow and um, the other Italian priest to, to exercise it out. It's a very scary movie. Obviously, it had a lot of impact, and loosely based on something that happened in 1949 in St. Louis where a little boy who I think was driven, he was assumed to have been possessed by a demon. They drove him cross-country, and he stayed in a house 
in St. Louis in 1949, stayed with a relative's house while they brought him up to, what would that be, the um, the Jesuit school. It's not Wash U, but it would be uh, SLU, St. Louis University. It's all kinds of priests up there. And that's the kind of um, professional you need to take care of those problems back then was a priest. So he was exercised, I think, on campus or in a nunnery or in some kind of facility with the uh, the priest school. Given what we know now, God knows what their procedures were to exercise this little boy, if you know what I mean. So apparently um, he was exercised in this in this. Uh, he was exercised off off site. He was not exercised in the house, but apparently there was a house he stayed at, and it's always known as the St. Louis Exorcist House. And Brian was always obsessed with finding out this house, and I was kind of like, "Well, they haven't invented the internet yet." There's no. I was just like a shoulder shrug. We'll never. It wasn't in the book. It wasn't in this novel. This novel was a novelization that became a movie, I guess. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of documentaries you can find out called the, you know, perhaps one called the Haunted Boy and, uh, and some other, probably, probably some crime network movies, some true crime network movies that are on cable somewhere. I've seen one or two of them. They're all pretty bad. There's a little bit, a lot of hubbub about this house. So cut to, and I would say this is in about 2005. I, uh, I'm living in St. Louis. And there was an article in the Riverfront Times that came out called Hell of a House. And this article came out, Hell of a House, was all about the Exorcist House. And my buddy, Rock and Roll Ray, grabbed the RFT, threw it down in front of me. I'm having some drinks. We're having some drinks at the High Point uh, Bar, which used to be over um, at uh, McCoosland Avenue over uh, off Clayton Road. I remember specifically we were having drinks there. He threw down the paper, said, Bowles, we've got to check this out. This is a part of our St. Louis history. We gotta we gotta find this house. We gotta find this house uh that the exorcist happened in for real, which it didn't. I always just you know throw it up to uh, um mental illness at this point, and God knows what else, whatever the priest put through that poor kid's mind. So he, uh, so I, I am roughly about 34 at this point, maybe 33, 34. And uh, I look at this article, and sure enough, right in the front page, right in the front of this article, it says the haunting story that surrounds the home at 8435 Roanoke. Brian something or other lived in the exorcist house. He was obsessed with finding out. I told him. I threw him off the scent because I said, who the fuck knows where that place is and when the fuck are we going to, who, who's going to listen to us meddling kids and finding out this caper? I mean, in the sense I didn't care, I thought in, since it was in St. Louis, I didn't know it was in Belnor. I thought it was somewhere in St. Louis. It could be anywhere, a needle in a haystack as far as I was concerned and, and not a, an adventure I care to take on. And maybe I didn't believe it. I don't know. Maybe I was that smart. It's hard to say. I suppose I believed in God back then as a kid and assumed he thought I was a hilarious dude. But I, uh, in general, I didn't, I didn't, it, it, it hit me and everything was like a Rolodex in my head, like boom, 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 boom. Oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. Brian was obsessed. That is the house. And, uh, oh, and initially, here's initially what happened. Here's initially what happened. I read the article and it said 8435 Roanoke. 
And I said to my, my friend Ray, I said, hey, you know, it's funny. Um, I saw The Exorcist for the first time in the house right next to this one. They had a picture of it, and I thought it was Jamie's house. Jamie lived right next door to this house. Jamie, the clown hobo uh, boy, um, <laughs> lived in the house right next door to it. And I uh, I assumed it was that house for some reason. I had not driven in this neighborhood in a long, long time. So we got into a car and drove there one Sunday. He's like, do you, do you, do you need to look up a Google Map? I'm like, nope, I know exactly where this is. I lived there as a kid. And I drove there, and when I looked at the house, the specifically the 8435 Roanoke house, I said, oh, wait, that was the house I saw the exorcist in the basement of. That was the first place I saw the exorcist in that house. I've told this story many times over the years, and I can tell it sounds like a weird compulsive liar story like I don't believe it myself I've also gone on record many times to say I don't blame people for not believing me it really seems so far out there but in fact that was my experience with Halloween the last Halloween I ever experienced which involved that house and the subsequent Halloween I probably hung out with them. I think I think I think the subsequent Halloween I didn't go out in costume, but I think we just roamed around the neighborhood. We're kind of just uh, roaming the neighborhood bored. So, um, but we didn't dress up. We didn't go door to door. We didn't get any candy. But I was hanging out with the kid that lived in that house. So uh, I don't know what happened to O'Brien. Something or other. Since then, uh, oh, ironically, since then, uh, a person that I'm a long time acquainted with. Uh, is a woman that uh, I guess hangs out at a place I hang out at and 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 worked in a place that I hung out in. And uh, one night she was saying how she had a, a long drive. She said, my boyfriend lives in the exorcist house. And I said, at the time I said something like, oh, at 8437 Roanoke. And, and she goes, it's fucked up that you know where that is, Bowles. And I, I, I told her the story. So I've since been in the exorcist house a handful of times for Halloween parties. And that's starting from... After two, 2005 on, so I've probably been there probably a half dozen times since then, which is, you know, again, enlightening. It's just enlightening to be in that fucking house that so much happened in. Uh, not the same house. Uh, it, it's certainly a shy ColecoVision, and uh, the, guy that lives, the guy that lives there now is, um, I remember he, he's kind of kind of decked out. He's had a lot of sort of sponsored parties and what have you. There's been... TV specials and documentary shot there and a narrative film shot there. There's been a few things and it, it uh, ironically has a big Hellraiser poster on the wall. At least he did. Uh, another thing is ironic is I state their address uh, to a friend of mine's house um, several times. They hate it. Well, they hate it when people uh, knock on the door and asked to look inside. That's rude as fuck. They are just people that live there. They actually have two children now. And now, during the pandemic, they are, I guess, somewhat compromised? Uh, they're immune con- compromised. At least one, I don't know which one, if it's her, if it's his, if it's her husband. Uh, her husband, I believe, bought it right after the, the article came out. So uh, her, they live there. They hated it before the pandemic that people would knock on the door. They even put notes on the door saying, hey, we've got a newborn. It'd be really classy if you didn't 
come and knock on the door. And that would uh, inspire people to walk around the back. But they do have people. Every now and again, I see online, I see people driving by and videotaping it. Other people in my friends list that aren't even related to them, or people pose in front of it. And it's just, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a piece of work. But in 82, no one really knew it was the Exorcist house. I, even upon asking my parents, had zilch ideas to where that house could possibly be. It was kind of like, who knows where that could be? That could be anywhere. And that's a big city and a lot of miles. So that's my uh, that's my story for today. First house on the left. Uh, the strange case of Lillian Maselli, followed by the discovery of the Exorcist house being the house that I not only was accused of burglarizing at one point, but was the actually the first house I had ever uh, seen the exorcist in. So tap that, boys and girls. If you want to uh, see an interesting perspective on the quote-unquote exorcist house in St. Louis. I might have mentioned it a little earlier. I've seen it once at the premiere in St. Louis. It's a movie called The Haunted Boy. And I happen to know it's on DVD because I own one, and I've yet to see it twice. I did watch it and found it uh, somewhat... There's a very insightful, but there's also a lot of bullshit in it. A lot of um, sort of ghost hunter type twin brothers. Or perhaps they're not twins at all. I don't know. They looked alike. And they were performing seances inside the house and had their sort of fakey KG type meters and pretending that there was something in the house. I've been in the house many times. It's, it's not haunted. Um, I do believe the uh, occupant, I believe the current occupant uh, stated it. He was interviewed and he had said, when I first moved in here, I heard noises and they cut. But apparently he had said, he had he'd followed it up by saying, it turns out we need a new storm windows. But they left that out. They, they left him hearing the noises. And they I think they proclaimed that the house is built on a vortex. And that's why you feel, I haven't seen it in a while. I, I think they, they have some, some mumbo-jumbo bullshit uh, for entertainment purposes. But uh, it is interesting. Do you ever find yourselves around, I mean, what do you think the, uh, back in the day with, with all the problems of the Catholic Church and priests, and they, they took this boy cross country who had some problems of some kind, and I'm assuming he wasn't possessed by a devil, but they took him to, to uh, have some priests deal with this, this problem, and what did, I mean, would they have the, the contemporary problems then that they do now? They must have. I mean, do you think they, uh, do you think they might have? Uh, one priest walked in, and there's another priest, and he says, "What are you doing, Father?" And he's like, "I'm I'm trying to hand job the devil out of this boy, or something like that." And the other one's saying, "Well, you know, you can just uh, orally remove it the way I like to with the with the possessed little boys. Who knows? It's a pretty terrible joke." But you know, I you ever you ever find yourself around priests and and uh, are compelled to ask them questions about what's going on with with the church? I I was uh, about three or four years ago. I was bartending a wedding. And I suppose the priest was um, uh, was was performing the ceremony or something like that. And and I just I was telling the other 
workers there with me that I'm like, I just, I just really want to bring up, you know, say something. Hey, Father, what'd you think of uh, Spotlight? Have you, have you checked out the Keepers yet? It's very interesting stuff. Oh, they would have, they would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those meddling. 55-year-old women with PTSD who were triggered by memories that they had been suppressing for uh, 20 or 30 years. So, yeah, yeah, what are you going to do? So anyway, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed uh, my recollections and my experiences with the unhaunted haunted house in St. Louis, Missouri. I uh, I feel free to, you know, I got I to gotta say again, I, I will not include the uh, letters from Paul and or um, Matt Willis Jones, if that is your real name. And I happen to know for a fact it is. Um, yeah. Um, feel free to write in some letters, people, whoever you are. There's some people listening. I get some data, although virtually none on the Spotify exclusive from last week. That wasn't a very good episode at all. It's really junky. It's probably mildly entertaining, I suppose. One of my shorter ones, at least. So there's that. So yeah, feel free to write in some letters and, uh, and, and let me know what for and what, and why not? And, and how come? That's filmbenderradio at gmail.com. Filmbenderradio at gmail.com. Usually it's in the comments, and I think it will be. So, Thanks for joining us. Of course, we're using music again from uh, using um, the Savage Bastards. Formerly the Savage Bastards, and now the Savage Kind. So hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. And we will see or hear from you next time. Thank you.